Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl for June 11th. It is an amazing Monday here in New York City and I have a really special guest here today to share with you that I'm thrilled about. Lama Surya Das, the author of many books, I think 14, although it could be more, Awakening the Buddha Within is one of, I guess, seminal work, if you will, uh, that many people are familiar with. He's one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars, one of the main interpreters of Tibetan Buddhism in the West, and a leading spokesperson for the emerging American Buddhism. The Dalai Lama affectionately calls him the Western Lama, which I love. Surya spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Yoga, and Tibetan Buddhism with the great masters of Asia, including the Dalai Lama's own teachers, and has twice completed the traditional three-year meditation cloistered retreat at his teacher's Tibetan monastery. He is also the founder of the Zogchen Center and Foundation in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and teaches all around the country and the world. Lama Siridas, thank you so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. Thank you, Wise Girl. <laughs> Very wise to be doing this kind of thing. I congratulate you, really, and it's wonderful. Also, thank you for having me. It's wonderful. And all who are sailing with us today on this podcast on air. Yes, we are sailing through, surfing the waves that yes, come. On top. Even if you go down, there's still more surfing <laughs> to do. Although I'm told the, the deeper that you go, the more still it gets. That's true. Yeah, but don't go over the edge of deep. <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking about water. If we're talking about spirit, I say the opposite. You know, make the leap. So let's start with that then. Let's just start where we are um, in this present moment. Make the leap. What does that mean in terms of spiritual life for people? Because here's the deal. I feel like a lot of people today, as you know, in the Western world, are being told that they have to do more, be more, uh, change, achieve. And we all know that this attempt at striving for happiness and clinging to all this stuff can be kind of frustrating and elusive. So what is this deeper dive into uh, a bit of a more spiritual possibility? Um, what's that all about? Well, since generally we think of this as a path, you know, a journey, then a deeper dive implies, you know, the path is maybe linear. A deeper dive implies not just being shallow person or, you know, this is not just spiritual wisdom. This is universal, you know, about growing up in character and becoming a mensch and part of a community and making the world a better place, not leaving it a worse place than when you were here. So a deeper dive spiritually brings you more in that direction, spiritually, emotionally, you know, uh, reciprocally with others and with all the environment and all beings. So, you know, recognize interconnectedness and being a deeper person, not just a selfish little um, bubble, you know, bubble in the sea or feel disconnected from everybody else in town. Uh, it may look into your feelings, you know, and why you feel that. And if you wish connection, you know, reach out or ask, talk. So I think that spiritual path has many benefits and, uh, you know, well discussed. So I'm not even going to mention those. Everybody can familiar with that. I'm going to mention some things that are not in my many books or in their online or, you know, you can just ask Lama Google many things these days. You know, what are the five hindrances to Buddhist meditation or what is the Eightfold Path, which, you know, that a book awakening thing is about the Buddha within each of us and all of us, which was a radical message 
20, 30 years ago, when people were thinking of a spiritual life very much as, you know, a journey, you never really get to heaven, or we don't even know if we believe in God or heaven or saints anymore, or we're so disillusioned and cynical by existentialism and the death of God, and you know, as they call it. That every, many of us are seekers. In fact, you, the human being is the seeking animal, as the American historian said. But, um, you know, who's going to become finders? That's the deepening, finding yourself, not just being an overgrown graduate student who can't live off a campus and then like a professor your whole life still because you're not ready to face the world and you like that protected greenhouse. It's fine for very few though. For most of us, we have to live like clover and be, or weeds and be able to grow and flourish everywhere. So I think it's very important to go deeper and broader and not just make the journey from here to here, and actually from seeking to finding, but also make this journey from here to here, like totally here. Not just from here to far away, the other shore, but from here to here. And that's the non-dualistic or direct mysticism of Tibetan Buddhism and Mahmudra Dzogchen. It's also a heart of you know, most other religious traditions, no doubt. And I really mm -hmm. want to talk about that because I, I think that that's one of the things that you bring to the table in a very relatable, hilarious way. Your podcast um, is, is, is so funny on the Be Here Now Network. I absolutely love it. The Awakening Now podcast. Um, you're half stand-up comedian, half Tibetan. Half sitting down meditator, Lama. <laughs> I think we need a little more stand-up, stand-up Dharma, you know? There's too much sitting down, going down in the Buddhist ghetto. Well, I agree with you. Down, it's a downer. And, but it's not just a downer. I feel like some people are kind of disassociating for their lives and they're just sort of sitting out saying, right. I meditate. And I'm like, yeah, because you're yeah. checking out. Like, Disassociating is very popular with and without meditation. There are other substances as well. Okay, that's true. I know. Well, meditation I, is one of them. Now I'm putting it in that funny category of substance abuse, like hiding in meditation or being an extrovert. If you're ready to introvert it, go to, go to a 100-day silent meditation retreat. You won't have to talk to anybody. But that's not the intention, really, of most of the retreat. Retreats is for calm and clear and enlightenment and awakening the heart, opening the mind and stuff like that. Not just to, you know hide like an ostrich from the winds of one's own conditioning, karma, difficulties in life. Life is, the unenlightened life is uh, difficult and challenging. That's Buddha's first noble truth or fact of life. Not that life is suffering. The unenlightened life is full of suffering and difficulties and stress. There is another way. That's the third noble truth, the path. You can do it too. Anybody can do it. If I did it, <laughs> did it. If I do can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. That's my message as the pajama lama, the swami from Miami, as well as the Western lama. And to not take ourselves so seriously. Life ain't much fun when we take ourselves too seriously. And is there an area of life that people take more overly seriously than the religious and spiritual I mean, people are suicide bombing for that. That's how seriously. And all kinds of other unhealthy thoughts and actions about, you know, the serious subject, religion, spiritually, even just trying to meditate or do yoga in the secular context. We still need to take it not so seriously, you know, like exercise, diet. It's important when it's important, but I think the most important teaching of 
what I, I'll call the Buddhist way of life is the middle way. Buddha never caused his path Buddhism and he never said he was a teacher or guru, always that he's a spiritual friend or elder spiritual brother, friend. I think the most important teaching, and I'm leaving a pregnant pause here for whoever's familiar to think about what's, it must be, it must be what? Loving kindness, it must be emptiness, it must be enlightenment. What is it, a wakefulness? No, maybe it's compassion. The most important teaching of the Buddha is the middle way, and that's what he called his path. Free from extremes. Of course, there's many lanes on the path. You know, we don't all have to be the same. But try, let's try to stay out of the ditches of extremes. Like on one hand, nihilism, nothing matters. And on the other hand, everything's random. No belief in karma or causation or, you know, cause ethics or anything. Or any kind of ongoingness in life. And on the other hand, materialism, where we only believe in what we can see or weigh or measure. And in between that, we call it the middle way free from extremes. So not all or nothing, not shouting, you mate, you always, you never. We all know from couples therapy that doesn't help. This always, never. And uh, similarly, always, never, you know, trying to not think when you meditate is like an always, never thing. I always think too much. I have to not th stop thinking, you know, and not seeing life so black and white. So the middle way is a, a fantastic touchstone for me that's really helped change my life and i'm an extreme person i've done a lot of you know extreme things in my life i'm not and on new year's eve i may be a little more extreme but the rest of the week i'm a little you know more moderate or content and satisfied with what there is so i'm just passing that on as you know an elder let's say getting older if anybody could relate to that maybe it'll help you as a touchstone it's not always never, it's not, you know, elation and depression. It's just like ripples of emo healthy emotions. Happy, sad, happy, sad, pleasure, pain, loss, gain. Doesn't have to be elation, manic, and depression, despair. Well, I think a lot of people feel like they think something's wrong when they're not in that state of elation or when they are in the state of pain. Yeah. That's wrong thinking, that's all. There's nothing wrong out there. Of course, the world is full of shit and problems, but you know, what you're just saying. They think there's something wrong in parentheses with them or with their situation or with their mate. You know, there's a lot of the me and mine in that. They think something's wrong with their, you know, boss. There may be plenty wrong with their boss, but it's this wrong thinking to externalize so much when it's really so subjective. And it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. So that very point about how we relate to whatever's happening on the outside, I have found is really the key to liberation or freedom or whatever you want to call it, ease of living, just yes. being able Absolutely. to. Absolutely. That is autonomy beyond teenage ideas of independence. That's true autonomy within interdependence. That's what I call it. So you're, you have self-mastery, but you're not a control freak. You also have less self or egotism. But you're still a healthy individuated mensch. You can take care of yourself and even others, even better, and take care of others and be a caregiver, not a caretaker, and really take care of others without, you know, falling into that extreme codependency and what is it called, wounded healer, you know, martyrdom. No, nobody wants that. Right and now. I think a lot of people feel as though when they are um, trying to 
have agency and be in their lives, that they have choice, but they're bound by things that they don't even know they're bound by. And so their yes. choices aren't as Very limited. Yeah. And so how do we get down? Right. So you were talking about going, you know, the, the more vertical Intention path. And yeah. Now, how do we get down? Do you want to say a few more words or not? Well, just, so I guess just to clarify yeah. what it is that I'm, right. you know, How did we get down or what now? Yeah. The bottom line is I feel like people think that they have a lot of choice in the world because we live in this free country of the, you know, USA, which is where I'm originating from. The home and, of the free and the whatever of the brave. Right. right. And, brave. and it's wonderful. Especially if you're the right color, et cetera. A well, lot of limitations and misunderstandings, outer and, with, and inner, we have our own. So there's all of that. And then there's also the part that um, we sometimes feel as though even if we have choice, that we can't quite do the thing that maybe we know at a deeper level is in our best interest to do. And then yes. we get frustrated with ourselves sure. that we can't do that. So how does this process, this middle path, uh, help with that? Oh, I don't know. Um, if I was going to think about that, I would say we have to see, you know, through the frustration that there's sort of like a, a spectrum. And it, it is, it is you know, like we're on our course or journey. And so we have free will, but things are also determined to some extent. That's the way people talk about it in philosophy. You know, so free will and determinism together, both, some of both. Like the, the Zen master D.T. Suzuki, who wrote 95 books about Zen Buddhism, I'm recommending this, so I'm mentioning his name, um, D.T. Suzuki. He taught at Columbia in the 50s, for you New York files like me, and he taught, Jack, he taught Zen in the 50s. He was a Japanese Zen master and professor. He taught Zen to, and Jack Kerouac, Merce Cunningham, I know these are all old white men, excuse me, Allen Ginsberg, at least he's gay, um, who was it who made the four minute silent piece, the pianist, John Cage, all of these people were his Zen student. So that is how you do something with those who know, you become one who knows, and then you bring it into your field or life. So here we are today. How do we bring it into our field of life? You know, I don't know, however you want to look at it, daily practice or a little study and practice, theory and practice goes together. I know you're going to back to graduate school, even though you've already had a career in media and you, you know, all, you know, your glamorous fashionista, you know. <laughs> I don't know about all that. New thought leader. Uh, people are always asking me, oh, you're so lucky you were in India, you met the great gurus, you were young, you weren't saddled. How have they put, you know, a job, a family, a house, a sick parents, a, you know, a mortgage, college loans, as if they're trapped in the mud. And meanwhile, living a wonderful, I'll just say middle class, it might be, you know, a little less or more or a lot. But, you know, we're here in the, here, look, we have a lot of gifts. So they're not that trapped in the mud. But we think we are because of dissatisfaction and lack of contentment and this drive to get ahead and get more that you were talking about. It's kind of historical, the American dream and the manifest destiny to go all the way from this coast to the other coast. And we're still like 
what's it called? There's still body English from that ball rolling from Europe to here. It had to roll so hard that bowling ball, those ships, those people's minds to get out of that old world and old world mentality and to seek whatever they're seeking, religious freedom, um, better life for their children, you know, endless resources, power, empire, whatever. That body English is still on and this ball is still rolling like a snow and we're still part of it. And it went all the way to the West Coast and oh, isn't Hawaii part of the US? Oh sure, why not? And Alaska and I don't know, Philippines, I think, or something, I don't know what I'm talking about. Guam, you know, <laughs> has the same status as Puerto Rico and Guam is like right near Japan practically, but we almost own it. So, you know, so that's the outer story of our conditioning and drivenness and karma. You know, but the inner story is from our parents and grandparents and genes. Don't overlook that, our new discovery of genes that goes from one life to another. Hey, maybe they were thinking of genes, but they didn't have microscopes when Buddha was talking about the body English continuing into the next life. You know, like if you damage your genes now, it affects your reproduction. You know, and if you, I don't know what, and if you, you know, damage your children, it affects their whole life oh i didn't realize that a yeah. kick was worse than a kiss when the kid was going off to school nobody told me because my parents kicked me and and the ball keeps rolling and we have to look at ourselves and see if this is true or not and not keep doing the same thing habitually routinely and expecting different results well that's, that's the definition of insanity so we we're very conditioned that's karma. We're very conditioned. That's just psychological theory in all development theory about nurture and nature. But we're also, you know, we can decondition. We can recondition, as we all know, even heroin addicts and others with extreme addictions can recondition that conditioning and decondition and be free and be autonomous within interdependence, not just have teenage freedom yet a little irresponsible. So I think that's what we're advocating, to take stock of your life and recondition. Find ways to work for you, recondition and decondition. And that's what big freedom, nirvanic peace, unconditioned love, enlightenment, and transcendental you know, cosmic wisdom means. Not just more facts in your brain or in your computer in the over-information era. Not to mention more material or more zeros after your bank, your assets. Right. Well, one of the um, your sort of neighbors over there in Massachusetts, Terry Real, who's uh, uh, you know probably somebody that you're familiar with. Um, who's no. a, oh, he's a therapist. He's My friends are mostly unreal. <laughs> Go on. Like, well, he's sorry. Couldn't, couldn't resist. It, it, it's all it's all good. Um, <laughs> Terry Real, the therapist. What what is real anyway? He's also a, he's a therapist. Yeah, and he does a lot of work. Who's on second? Don't let me divert you, Maxine. Uh, uh -huh. You're the media person. <laughs> I'm reining you in. I'm reining okay. you in. I'm taking out my magic lasso, my Wonder okay. Woman magic lasso. And I I'm am like a, what, a maverick or a Mustang. I need reining in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Let's and your, you and your, uh, your football days. I, I can yeah. see how you would plow through the field, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, in any case. Even in the snow <laughs> and mud. He's a lot like you in some respects. Um, one of the things he talks about is that he, he wrote a book called, I don't want to talk about it, about male depression. And yes. a lot of that, I interviewed Now I remember because I see those books and they're very important. I thought, wow, yeah. this is good. 
more books on depression and even male depression, not just female depression or, you know, very scientific. Excellent. So tell. And he's, he basically talks about the fact that he has two books, two sons, um, and, and he dealt with his stuff, his abuse from his father, his, uh, you know, yeah. All, all that stuff that you talk about, ancestrally, you know, genetically, whatever it is, and my two kids won't experience the same things that I did, and so it stops here. It stops with me. That's great. Now, it, yeah. and, he, yeah. and, he, yeah. and he helps a lot of people. So he took that step forward. A lot of people, I think, that I encounter feel resentful that, first of all, they're hurting. Secondly, they feel angry and resentful that they have to do this work. And thirdly, they feel like, what's the point? And so these are just the, you know. Those are good questions. Right. And so when I look at someone like him, who very clearly has said, well, here's the point. Because yeah. it has to stop at some point. Because and of some of the benefits of, you know, reconditioning, the spiritual life, whatever transformative techniques you work on. But that people have a fear about stepping in. Of course. And so is there any way that we can talk about something along the lines of like, actually, it's going to be a little cloudy, right? Sure. Like, but that, that doesn't mean that you can't still cut through the fog. Yeah. It's cloudy now. And cloudy, you know, clouds are part of it. it and make the sky more beautiful. Uh, I mean, in general, although it might just fog out the whole sky, but you know, in general, the cloud, the sky is adorned by clouds and we see the sky better when it has some punctuation. Similarly, if we were always in the same mood, we wouldn't, wouldn't even feel anything and we wouldn't, you know, know anything. So again, the middle way, it's not like all sunny day or all cloudy day. And there are places in the world where, you know, there's no sun for four, four or six months or, the, you know, blah, blah. But in general, we live in a middle way of like 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of dark. And we also have an emotional life, you know, that vacillates up and down, which is healthy and brings us intelligence from the field and from our body and stuff. It's not like we have to get rid of our fears or anger, those are just energies, but we can look for ways to constructively relate and respond to them, not just react with a knee-jerk habitual reaction. Like when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you might feel anger, but it doesn't mean you have to act it out. Anger is not a crime, anger is not even an action, anger is a feeling. And then if we react angrily, or we you know push, kick, cut off, whatever, shout back, then that's like a more makes karmic imprint. We make it more habit that way instead of letting the habits run down by not feeding them. Let the wheel of conditioning run down without feeding it by awareness, by being, so this is how. We bring our awareness into the present moment between stimulus and response. So whatever we feel, that's a stimulus and we consider how to respond rather than just pushing it away, stuffing it down. If you're like an invert aversion kind of type, well, grabbing towards it, if you're agreed and desire, I want it type. This is really mainly, if you get basic about Buddhism, there's a lot more sophisticated ways of looking at it. There's two or three types. There's the aversion, anger type, or fear, paranoia, and there's the attachment, greed, desire, lusty. Hungry ghost. Yeah. Well, that's just one extreme of it. So but my point is there's only the pushing away and the pulling. You know, I want I want it not, then I'll be happy. I want it, then I'll be happy. It's simple. And it's exhausting to go through life like that. And based on the illusion of separateness or the or malcontent that we need to, if only that would go away, I'd be happy. If only I get this 
you know, what I want, then I'll be whatever you think. But Love, safe, happy. Their vulnerability that peaceful. they're going to be exploited. People are. Well, that's why it's good to talk about this and say people have been doing this for a long time and worrying about these same questions. And you take little steps, you go in a safe place. Some people do it in therapy where the professional has made a very self safe container in private room with locked door or double door. Some do it in group therapy, but it's still a safe container in a room where there's no visitors or observers. Some do it in an intimate relationship easier than with, you know, the neighbors. So you find where it's safe to make baby steps and share your fears or doubts or show your real self or expose your, you know, its main issues and face them yourself. I mean, really, that's the first place to, to try to show up is to yourself. So can we get back to We have to so, much self -deception, well, so much self-deception, so much self-deception and avoidance and, uh, and the denial and misperception even about ourselves, not so much about others or the bigger picture, the world, the universe, the globe, the environment, the species. So this is my point. You mentioned the Mahamudra Dzogchen teachings in the beginning and, and, and non-dual teachings. And this is something that I've talked a lot about um, on Wise Girl before and in my, in my little sort of editorials. But that, and other people use other words for it. Basic goodness, true yes. nature, Buddha, right. presence, religion. Yes. People might call it God. Maybe. Right, bring it all out. Jesus, okay. nature, what? the inner right. light, so the goddess this. within. Right. And I'm then just saying it for our listeners. Whatever yep. we call that highest or deepest thing, first of all, it's a placeholder for something we don't really know, can't really name, fix it, and um, comprehend just with our conceptual mind. We may be able to directly experience or intuit it. Doesn't mean it's not there or it's nothing but it's beyond words and concepts. God, truth, Buddha nature, basic goodness, the inner light, the clear light, um, the, the Christos within, you know, the, whatever you want to call it. The so, good Buddha nature, Dalai Lama calls it the, the good heart. Uh, you know, he means Buddha nature, but Buddha just is a placeholder for the ultimate, the pure, the unselfish, the wise and loving so um but eastern philosophy is sort of that like this is the way things are that this well, is a presence that is sort of foundational to everything and that includes every human being and that actions can be skilled every being every, every being, no, every being, being not just human and yeah to every being every and being. Because every being would be created of it, right? And so every being, and in the human realm, every human being, and a lot of people feel as though I find that they don't have access to that or don't know what that is or think it's out there or other than or something that has to be. Yes, we, mo most of us think like that and feel like that, Maxine. Um, Francesca. <laughs> are you Francesca, Maxine? Maxime. Maxime. It came backwards on my... It's list. okay. Yeah, so Francesca. That's a beautiful name. Thank um, you. Like the barefoot Contessa. Yes. Francesca. Anyway, <laughs> some of us feel separated or no access to it for very practical reasons, like we're in the wrong caste or the wrong gender. I'm starting big and honing in, you know, including other countries, or with the wrong age or with the wrong something. 
we're the wrong person, you know, or, or we're, we're not, you know, I don't know, old and educated enough or, you know, we're a minority, we're too poor, we can't afford to, um, you know, so we feel excluded or we don't have access. That is stuff we have to deal with, at, I think, two levels. And one is deal with the systems that are broken. So there is true, there are some people that don't have access, even though theoretically we have, you know, free public education and university, almost everybody I think can go to college. And there are other ways of getting ahead if you're talking about even outer and inner, everybody has access. Even Helen Keller made great strides in life being deaf, blind and mute. So we all have access. Of course, not everybody has access to pay a lot of money to go to a spa like Canyon Ranch and hear Deepak Chopra. but you know, you can go online and hear anybody you want or on YouTube. And there's a lot of people around who are, excuse me, Deepak, my friend. And <laughs> you know, like the Karmapa Lama was talking in Madison Square Garden last night and last week teaching all week about the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva. He's like junior Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama comes to 50 countries every year, even though he's in his 80s. Plus, you can go on the web anytime. I'm just mentioning some lamas that I know, great lamas. Every religion, every philosophy, you know, there were great psychotherapists who were genius workshop leaders or therapists. So I think not everybody has access to them, but there's plenty in the free public domain. So that's the outer systems. People might not feel they don't have access or only the whites go that, you know. I know some people of color or people with a lot of children feel like only the whites can go to those bachelor-like retreat centers. Look how many whites there are already. Well, but on the inner level, that's just part of the distorted feeling of insufficiency. And if we were just wealthier or smarter or younger, or dare I say, more beautiful, and we all know now about what's it called? face brushed magazine ads and nobody looks the way they look on tv or in a magazine what's photoshop called? photoshop yeah it used to be called face brushed or something airbrushed yeah, airbrushed airbrushed photos nobody looks that good and every you know most of the women young women in america are feeling not good enough because of that we're too fat you know Nobody looks as good as those actors and models when they show them in the right light, but then you see them, they might be very well anorexic or like addicted to, you know, diet pills and cocaine. So don't over-idealize, which is another extreme. So I'm just saying, if we work on it, you know, we can think globally and work on the systems. We definitely need to, the broken health system and the broken partisan system and the racism in this country and homophobia and all kinds of things. But on the inner level, we have to root those things out of ourselves, our own prejudices, our own hatred and aggression. And anger is just a feeling. When it comes to hatred and aggression, that's like going in the wrong, really bad action direction. So I think we have to, we could, if we're interested, look into uprooting these seeds or cooking them a little, becoming a little more aware of them. So when they arise, we don't just react to them. And, you know, including prejudice and paranoia that we have of people taking our jobs, you know, or, or uh, anything, you know, building walls. Or we also do that with our character and our defense mechanisms. We build walls. We put our best fit, foot forward and think nobody sees us like creeping sideways like a crab, <laughs> putting our best foot forward and, you know, avoiding and denying our dark side, which, you know, sometimes it ain't that dark. It's like the other side of the moon. It's very relative. There's a lot of richness there too. We all like, 
scary haunted houses and Halloween and, you know, horror movies and they're fun. So, well, when I went, when I went on the retreat with you the other day, there was a, you know, you did the yin yang symbol, which is the darkness and the light, the little yeah, intertwined. intertwined and there's a dot of each and the other. And a lot of people are afraid to sort of recognize that when we recognize that there is both in everything, then we yeah. can use right. Or whatever it is that it has to teach us and learn from and another step along the path. But like I the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain, which is another like worldview or breakdown. Let's just take it at face value. Working complementary, then we're like, here we are. Doesn't matter what our IQ is. You know, just like that, we're sane, adult, mature people. We can have a converse and we'll think and, you know, have fun and argue anything else. And, you know, but without, if one side of the brain gets damaged, then like, it doesn't work. So complementarity is my point, not opposition. So similar with the light and dark and the ups and downs in life and our self-judgment. So your real question was, people are afraid to try something new and be vulnerable, or show their weakness by asking for help or showing up at a meeting, you know, let's say a 12-step meeting or a women's battered group meeting. And there's so much talk about rape and abuse these days. And yet still some people, and especially young people, and I talked to two yesterday, uh, you know, who it just makes me so mad, but we have to take care of them. Uh, battered and abused, you know, young teenage girls and stuff like that. It makes me crazy, but I, you know, keep my center. She, we really have to deal with this and, you know, root out that aggression or lust, not the fear and anger, but, the, you know, the exaggerated conditioning. We can love even those who harm us. But what is it? What is there? Are a lot of people who feel as though there's something wrong with them, and they cling to that as an identity, and yeah. they aren't willing to yeah. see that there's a presence that's beneath that, or deeper than that, or in. Well, you that. keep asking about Francesca. You keep asking about the presence. So, I would love to get on to that. But for now, let's talk about like us and the patients, <laughs> the clients, the seekers, whatever we are. Um, I'd love to talk about the presence uh, beneath it all and the oneness and the all-encompassing wholeness, God, if you wish, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it, basic goodness. Um, well, we're afraid to so admit it. That, can that not be some of the gasoline that gives people the courage, if you will, to kind of step into the space of vulnerability? Sure, and invest if you can relate to that. I'm, I'm just responding to the other part of your question about that people feel that, you know, it's they don't believe it or it's too much to get into or they'll, they'll lose themselves, you know, be weak or lose themselves or have or they hear some extreme snippet of fire and brimstone. They get the impression to be spiritual. You have to throw away your house and your family and your, you know, love, you know, sex and your job. And like, this is just a, a Spirita, go to a cave, go to an ashram, go to a nunnery, go to, you know, Heidi to a nunnery, Ophelia. That's the alternative. It didn't work out as like prince and princess and king, so Heidi to a nunnery. Is there any alternative? No, Ophelia, there's no college for you. Heidi to a nunnery. We're done here at the castle in Denmark. So it's a sad, you know. Ophelia is a woman. If anybody's listening, is not familiar with the Shakespeare. There are other um, possibilities today: man, woman, or child, old or young, and to recondition a little learning and you know a little experiential practice like yoga and mindfulness have become very big 
in the secular self-improvement or even professional worlds. I'm all for that, but there's more to it than yoga as exercise or to look good. Yoga means union, and in India, union with God or union with the divine life. So there's eight kinds of yoga, not just physical yoga. And similarly with meditation, and it brings nirvanic peace and enlightenment, not just better attention span or concentration, which we want and need, but there's other benefits we could get so i think it's important to go deep and not to be afraid and make the leap which is how we started this conversation sometimes you have to make a leap maybe you're in an unhappy marriage but you're afraid to be alone or you haven't been alone since you were very young or you're worried about other things which are important like the children or or what people are going to think or you know your parents or you, you know you don't know what to do Maybe you're not trained professionally because you've been living with somebody who mostly takes care of those things. So sometimes you have to make the leap or leave your unsatisfying, unfulfilling job where you're treated shabbily, seek a better job or find your true vocation even better. Right? Livelihood is one of the eight steps on the Buddhist Eightfold Path. So even Buddha, who is a monk, says, you know, you, right livelihood or your true vocation is you know as important as mindfulness or concentration or ethics so i think that's very important it's like being compassionate to yourself and taking care of yourself making the most of your life find the vocation that while it's supporting you while you're building the business doesn't stunt you but even grows you so I yeah. think that's very important. And then bring that into daily life. And that's a deepening, a widening, and a broadening at the same time. And become a deeper person when you're in your true vocation. You want to do it more and all the time. Not just get it done at X o'clock and then have, go home for your real life. Yeah, more of the integration. Um, you mentioned uh, a couple of things that are very real today. Racism, sexism, um, you know, issues about... Uh, broken you know, systems. Well, health system. Broken. So here's the thing. Everybody wants to know why do people who are, for example, and I'm just using this as an example, um, people who are self-identified as uh, white, like why should they care about racism? Why should they... They don't. <laughs> but why they should... Yeah, I, my question is why they don't, but they are us. I mean, I know why I don't, which I, I try to do, but I, you know, there's a part of me that don't, like my parenting grandparental part. So I'm not going to bash on them. I'm just saying, you know, I, that's why we don't, and they are us. We're used to being on top. We grew up with some prejudices, even though they weren't ours. So much as our grandparents and parents would have, they would say and think, or had, and how the banks would treat them, and how the neighborhood would treat uh, the diverse people, not just blacks, but Indians, Chinese, Puerto Ricans in New York, of course, in my time. Now, of course, you know, Central Americans and Mexicans and people from the islands have gotten a lot of problems and news in the southern border area and everywhere. I think we all have that to some extent. It's, there's always an us and them, as long as there's an ego. Now let's get back to my basic thesis and drive all the blame or responsibility into one, not Juan Gonzalez into one, oneself. <laughs> ego, us and them. It's not a zero sum game, we don't understand that. It's like children who fight over the toys. What's the best way to play? With friends, or, you know, siblings, right? with toys, not just my toy, my toy, like a one and a half year old with their first toy. So 
you know, the, the, the third, sacred third. There's me and there's you and then there's us. That's the sacred third of relationships, of marriage or relationships. So outgrowing that my and them, you know, me and mine, always self-preoccupied if I'm satisfied, happy, or how I feel, to a more inclusive mutual reciprocity. I've written all about this in my most recent book, Make Me One With Everything. Buddhist meditations to awaken or see through, I think awaken they were, awaken to the illusion of separateness. So we see our mutuality and we're all interconnected, interdependent, interbeing, as Zen Master Vietnam Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, interbeing, interwoven. It's not just that the water is connected to the earth and the earth to the trees and the grass. We're all interwoven and interbeing. So that's very helpful. So what do I give up and what do I gain when I go into interbeing? Um, Mother Teresa said the worst illness of modern times, the cancer of modern times is loneliness and alienation. So you risk losing that as you get into interbeing. And the more you're into being, the more you lose that. But, you know, it's a kind of loss that's like, I don't know. If you losing something you don't want or need. But I'm going to be devil's advocate. large consoles or your appendix. I'm going to be devil's advocate. It's not real loss that you bemoan because you're getting something better. It's like I'm when you get healthy, you lose the disease. But what if you don't think you're diseased? So I'm going to be devil's advocate. And you wouldn't be doing this. So how do we get people who are... That's what I'm saying. Generally, if you want to, instead of telling what people that they should do, you know, like, I sometimes say, why did you come here tonight? And somebody says, I'm a seeker, or I want to learn something. Or I said, a seeker? Why? What are you looking for? Did you lose it here in this room? You know, that's the materialist approach, and it's absurd. But we often act like that, you know, looking for love in the wrong places, as the song goes. We're wasting our time doing the same thing again and again and saying tomorrow will change when we know we're not going to. But I'm going to play devil's advocate. I know there are people out there who are earning a decent living, who are able to get the kind of intimate um, physical, uh, physical, you know, they satisfaction. Have sex with, they can have sex when they yep. want. They can buy what they want. They can go where they want. Yeah, they, I know people like that too. And then they say, well, why, do I, why should I care about racism? Uh, yeah, why should I, I care I, about I sexism? I really don't tell them they should anything. I just mentioned that this is a problem that I see we have faced, so I can't just rest on my own happiness and enlightenment laurels. That, you know, how can I be really content and happy if the neighborhood is in flames and the environment is endangered and the fish are washing up dead on the but ocean? That presumes there? that you have empathy and a capacity for that. Yeah, so just because you're less selfish doesn't mean you're less empathic. You're probably more empathic. The less there is of me-ism, the more there room there is for you-ism and for true-ism. Like, the less there is of me, the more room there is for goddess or God. That's an so, ancient mystic saying. You can write it down. Take it through, you can Google it. Well, some people say, I, you know, I, the narcissist, I know um, there's an Al, old Alec Baldwin movie where he says, I am God, you know. Yeah, well, uh, and, and, a lot of mystics said that, too. You, you, you know, you have to live by your beliefs. So that's a funny in that. I like George Burns better in a movie where he played God with John Denver, of all people, who is like a supermarket manager who meets God in the form of George Burns, who proves he has all the powers, whatever, you know, during the car arguing. George Burns makes it rain in the car. 
<laughs> I mean, it's hilarious, you know. I remember that. Yeah. And George Burns like 101 years old. He's as old as God and a lot of other things. I, I can't remember what it's called. It might be called Oh, Comma, God. I think that's the movie. So, you know, there's a lot of ideas about God. If you look in Buddhism, we say, this is serious. I wasn't saying anybody could say I'm God and that lunatic asylums are full of such people. Alec Baldwin, you know, it was a movie that was a good line that some writer wrote, funny. Um, yeah. but what was I saying? The idea of empathy, caring about other yeah. people and why some people don't seem to care and not so much why they should, but how to invite them into the space where they recognize that ultimately their happiness also an interbeing, interdependent kind of happiness. Well, anybody that's a parent knows that their happiness is very related to the people, the kids they love. Because kids and grandkids just take you to another level, right? I mean, that's a universal truism. Nothing's perfect and it's not always and never, but there's another level of love that you feel, especially when you're a mother and being loved. So, but doesn't the Dalai Lama it's talk so about empathic and there's no, there's, you know, the, at first, it's almost no selfishness. And then you get into, you know, back in, into you and, you know, and your child start to form up and dance and bounce off each other and the environment and other things happen. And, you know. But doesn't the Dalai Lama talk about near compassion and far compassion and it's the yes. far compassion that needs to cult be cultivated? Well, that, that's, a, yeah, that's a, one translation. Let me say, I, just to be provocative, I would say that Buddhists today, I'm not going to say, say the Dalai Lama talks too much about it. You know, Buddhists today in the West, in English, we often hear, I think, too much about compassion and altruism and loving kindness, which, of course, we need to hear about. And you can, in one way, never have too much. But real compassion, loving kindness is not too much. And it's not being a hovering helicopter parent or, you know, there's a difference between have, uh, mothering and smothering. So I think the Buddhists, they talk too much about compassion. What about self-compassion and self-love and self-acceptance? Now, so we have to have both, breathing out and breathing in, how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves. And there's a lot of work to be done in this area. So that Definitely idea... Definitely, you know, like research-wise, maybe scientifically, whatever you want to call it, psych psychologically, as well as experientially, personally, individually, and collectively. And then we'll see. And so the Dalai Lama is saying, you know, theoretically, you could, you should love everybody, well, beings, not just as much as your child. That's real far compassion. That's unrealistic. That's an ideal. It's, I was joking to you before we went on the air. You remember? It's easier to love all beings and just than to really love somebody and get over your intimacy issues and let yourself be vulnerable and not fake it, you know, authentic, exposed, totally present, rolling with the punches, dancing together, fighting together, working it out in the bigger context of big love, unconditional love and connection beyond the polarities of like and dislike, unconditional love and commitment and connection beyond the polarities of like and dislike, which are mere feelings which go up and down. And if you, like it, if you dislike it too much, you can't stand it. That's a problem. But the little like and dislike, you know, is nothing. So your question was, what happens when you, you know, let go or make the leap? You're not losing anything. You're losing, you're like letting the hut collapse and finding out you're living in my father's, you know, my God's mansion, as it says in a good book. In Buddhism, we say that's what, 
it means to see through the illusion of separate self or ego. You're still an individuated adult ego who takes care of himself and their children, uh, you know, first or something like that. But you also know there's another side to, to things. And if the neighbor's children run out in the street, you like leap like Superman, risk your own life to get them, of course, or the dog, not just yours. So the wow. middle way, both and neither, not just no one home or big ego, me, I am God. You know, man is, what is a man's castle, it is home. This is home. I mean, it's not a woman, woman's castle, too? No. It's a, shared, it's a shared castle. You mentioned the word commitment, and I think a lot of people who are um, a bit younger, who are trying to do this relationship building and stuff, are having more of a hard time because there are a lot of there's a lot of choice in the world today. It's a lot easier to. Yes, to that's not fine. I know. I, I feel for you all, really. A lot of choice, <laughs> but this has been going on for a long time. The increasing amount of choices with globalism and travel and media and. You know, people used to be, marry or just only another people in their village or their religion or their gender or their whatever. So it's been going on for centuries and it's, it's a conflict and a struggle. I just want to get back to a very important point, you know, that I want to make about <clears throat> God and I am God and all that. In Buddhism, we don't really believe there's a separate god or creator that we're all interconnected and i don't even want to say we're all one it's more like in, in indescribable oneness or holism or contentment is the greatest form of wealth nothing can be more fulfilling than that you know contentment and fulfillment is a lot more than temporary happy and sad or pleasure and pain so if we think that as you know, oh, there are some people that they have everything they want, which you spelled out a little bit in your way. Yeah, there, we think like that. And it's just like, you know, we all question this. Aren't they happy? Well, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of suicides lately among people who seem like Alan Baldwin on top of the world, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade. Um, a 20-year-old star of one of the hottest TV series now, a guy, a boy to me, I saw in the news today. What was his name? Because I don't watch those new series. But, you know, I got the picture. It was very sad. And just yesterday in front of 300 people, I did a day workshop retreat with Christian Dice and Sharon Salzberg, and we chanted and meditated and taught and had a lot of Q&A. Two different young women spoke up about being exploited, abused, raped, they use different words when they were teens and not telling anybody and being ashamed and going back after college to live with their parents and feeling lost. It was heartbreaking. But we have to do something about this. And these are upper middle class kids that, you know, have everything externally and so do their parents. So happiness is good and we all seek that, but there are deeper levels of contentment and fulfillment. Like you might be crying because your parent died, but you're happy that, you know, the parent died and not the child or the grandchild. Like dying in the right order is the natural law. So beyond happy and sad, there's a contentment and a fulfillment when we do the rites and rituals and accept the necessary losses in life. And I think that's very important and not to over-idealize it, you know, just because people, some people seem to have what you want, they must have what you really want or what they really want. 
and I don't have to keep moralizing about that, but just to mention the suicides of some famous people and other things that have happened and the toppling of some of the kingpins, mostly men, not entirely of our culture in the Me Too movement, but also elsewhere before that, and the great disillusionment of modern times, the postmodern times with authority, with hierarchy, with any notion of God or spirituality or religion or, you know, like the politics is an honorable profession. Robert F. Kennedy said, who was assassinated, would have been president probably, he said, it's amazing to me that to, to think that I, I came into politics as an honorable profession because now people snicker if you say something like that, if you believe that. And that was like 40, 50 years ago, but it's supposed to be public service. So these are big questions. And I, I guarantee that if you work on your, quote, self and your bigger self being and self-love, self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-understanding, self-realization. I know it sounds a lot of self. As Rabindra Tagore, the great poet, first Nobel Prize in India said, when you uh, know your true self, you know God. This is in the Vedas. This is, you know, Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual Hindu philosophy. So your true self with a capital S. When you see through your ego bubble and you're in the whole sea, even though you don't, have to, so you don't have to kill the bubble. You're still in the whole sea and the whole sea, and you're nothing but sea now. So that's the underlying oneness that runs through everything, whatever you want to call it, interpenetrativeness or interbeing with divine within the inner light. The great Tao, I think, is one of the best ways of calling it, even though it's foreign. It's a word we should know, not just Tao Jones. <laughs> the great Tao, that's what I'm talking about. The, the river or the ocean being that we're all bubbles or waves or whirlpools or icebergs or clouds in. Yeah, I, I, I totally... Read the Tao Te Ching, translated by Stephen Mitchell, friends. It's one of the wisest books in the wise girl's world. And in the D Dalai Lama's world, too, my world. Right, right, right. No, it's, um, it is a... Uh, the way, if you will. The way, the way things are. I mean, power. I guess the bottom line is we continue to try to cling to things that aren't the way things are. And... Yeah are afraid of experiencing things as they actually are, which makes it really, really hard to just be here because we're resisting the actuality of how things resisting are. Resisting and, you know, pulling in. Like, at the same time, you know, one step forward, one back. Right. I want, I don't want. I love you, I hate you. We generally don't hate people we never met or don't know. We only hate the ones we love or had hope and expectation with. There's always seemingly a part that seems that we feel like it's not okay to just feel okay. Well, that's called survivor's guilt. Psychologists call it survivor's guilt. Whether you're talking about, you know, some kind of survivor, whatever comes to mind in your mind, or like the Holocaust survivor, or the survivor of a car accident, or, you know, the actor with AIDS, didn't die when all of his or her friends died. Um, and he just became, what do you, you call it, you know, HIV positive and is living out his life with his partner. He has a lot of survival guilt, but it's something we have to relate to. Like, who do we think we are? I mean, who's doing all this? We're not in control and we're not to blame. I mean, we need to participate, but we're not in control.
And no one can do it all. And yet we tried, but you know, we're not in control. And no one can be exempt from participating. We tried. People escaped, but even hermits, you know, even ostriches, you put your head in the sand until storms blow over. What about hermits and people like that? They're still part of society in the sense of the environment and eating the food, you know, drinking the things or getting the medicines that other people produce. So that's why I like the term the Great Tao, which is the way, but it's also in Chinese, like the uh, cosmic energy or power. It could be translated as the flow, which has a lot of cool meanings. And so if an image, there's a huge flowing oceanic river that flows through us, not that we have to get into. So we often, too often here, get into the flow, Joe. Okay, I'll try. But, what it really, but really the, the thing is the flow goes right through each of us and we're not really aware of it or aligned. And we're trying to get into the flow. How about flowing with the flow? Why always try to change it? I mean, you're allowed to steer, but, you know, the flow is flowing downstream. You really need to do a lot of work to go upstream against the grain of things as they are. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to change anything in life, the middle way. But yeah, I the think flow, you know, know the flow. We're talking about the Tao now. Yeah, I just think a lot of people get caught up in the efforting and striving, especially when it comes to yeah. intention and the mindfulness and the meditation. And I didn't sit today, or I should have sit today, or I have thoughts. And I off with their thoughts. heads. That's what I say. Off with their heads. Wouldn't it be so? I won't stand for that here in my castle. No, I, I, I am very sympathetic, and I've been there and done that. And, you know, I've been trying to meditate since like 1968, my first meditation retreat in Rochester, New York, the Zen Center for Kapilau Roshi, my first American Zen Masters. When I was in college at Buffalo, John Salzburg was a college at Buffalo, Mirabai Bush, Buffalo. Um, we, we weren't all hanging out together. We met in India a, few, a couple of years later. But my point is, it's, it's now or never. It doesn't matter where you are or how old you are. You know, there's always the middle way and balancing. I know I'm droning on about the middle way, but it keeps saying effort and effortless. Like when you're interested in something, when you're passionate, when you're having fun, when you're really curious, when you're excited, you stay up all night. What happens when you're bored and it gets to be dark and then eight or nine or 10 o'clock and you're in some comfortable position, you fall asleep? So the interest factor, and I'm not talking about on Wall Street, the fat, Buddha called it the mental factor of interest is a great arousing energy and it arouses energy. So if you get your interest up, you know, if you're curious, if you, you know, maybe you read about these things or you hear some people talking about it like we are with enthusiasm and joy and not fire and brimstone and threats and, you know, blah, blah. It maybe makes sense. Like, um, you know, now we have a lot of scientific research about the inner world and through brain scans and fMRIs and neurodharma, as I call it, the overlap of meditation and awareness, dharma and neuroscience. My brother's a big neuroscientist. Mm. Um, now we have the scientific data is kind of reinforcing our Western mentality, you know, very we trust the men and the men and women now in the white coats. Even the foreign ones, because they've studied a lot, I guess. And so this, there's a lot of research supporting the benefits of these inner sciences or these contemplative practices. So I'm all for it and not beating ourselves up about it. You know, it's like if you go to therapy, 
to get help? Do you, do you, you know, how, how much do you worry about being a good therapy patient or client? Is that what you're trying to prove to the therapist that you're paying? Or are you trying to you know, work on some actual issues that you might have? I, I think that that's accurate and we're going to wind up soon because it's, it's been time, but it just, you know, I think people are afraid to love, to be loved and to, and when I say love, I mean, I'm afraid to, of lo to be loved and loved and like exposed, you know, and that vulnerable rather than putting my best foot forward. What? I don't need you. You can't manipulate me or whatever my, you know, object relations, my neurosis is or, I need you. I'm going to attract and, and, you know, whatever, conquer you, even if it's not physically or financially, but, you know, like make you one of me and not threatening, but actually like help me. So that's the, this kind, these kind of things. And, you know, if you don't practice every day, that's okay. Let's not make this beautiful, buoyant, joyous spiritual journey into one more chore and way to judge ourselves is not good enough and the ever-rising bar of the inner tyrant. You don't want to fall into that. So I always teach a very relaxed and accessible and try to use English words. Of course, I know Tibetan and some Sanskrit and other things. You know, English words and not $25 words or $5 words and, you know, be like a player coach and keep meditating, practicing myself. I've had ups and downs and, you know, more or less over the years. But in the beginning, you have to if you want to develop a habit, just like exercise, and if you do it every day, that's good. And if you do it, you know, every day-ish, that's good year-round. Exercise three, four, five times a week is fantastic. So, you know, if you meditate, pray, do yoga three, four, five times a week, you have a spiritual life probably. Or some benefits, you know, more resilient, more focused, secular benefits. Buddha said loving kindness has 12 or 11 main benefits. One of them is you have less wrinkles. That anger makes your face like a shriveled up, scorched shrimp. And loving kindness makes you like have less wrinkles. My mother loved that. She said, I'm becoming a Buddhist. Yes. Less wrinkles. Look at Sharon Salzberg. No wrinkles. This is a quote from my mother, Joyce Miller of Long Island. Look at Sharon. No wrinkles. The mother of loving kindness. And with that, and with that, they'll market a new face cream. Yeah, Nirvana <laughs> face cream. The, the meta, no wrinkles. The meta face cream. The, the <laughs> it probably is already out there. I don't even know. Um, with that, we're going to have to close because um, there is Nirvana perfume. I've heard. And there's also some sour perfume. Well, yeah, uh, I'm familiar with that smell. We don't want to be using too much of that. <laughs> I think it makes me smell good. See. Uh, I, I think that's the, the best... illusion. If I just do this different, then I'll get what I want. There's a lot of I in that, me and mine. But it's the, it's the old adage of wanting what you have or... Yeah, it's yeah, even a funny way of putting it since I'm a praying and quoting and writing person. I say, pray for what you have and all your prayers are already answered. So that's not exactly the same as affirmation, which is kind of making up the most fantastic thing and then trying to say you already have it. I am rich. I am content. Well, I hope so. This is really, you know, pray for like, accept what you have and all your prayers are answered. And of course there's room, there's middle way. It's not all or nothing. So you don't have to become passive. Pacifist, peace loving is not the same as passive, like a doormat.
So we can still take action and try to make this world a better, and must, I believe, make this world a better place and ourselves better people. I'm not going to say you better people, ourselves better people. Root out the prejudice and the anger and racism or whatever little I have. I lived around the world. I have so many foreign friends of all colors. But there's a little part of me that's still the, you know, socialized New York Jew, et cetera. That, you know, from the, what, they, what did we used to call this country? The Judeo-Christian country of America. Somehow we forgot about a lot of other people and people are still using those words, even though there's so many other kinds of people in our country. So I try to see the one in the many and discriminate in the different many as to like skillful, helpful, and wholesome rather than harmful and um, see the light and the Buddha and divine, and the goodness in everyone and everything. And also recognize when it's not there, try to take care of that as appropriate in myself or reciprocally. I mean, we can share these things. It's not a shame if I say, oh my God, you are so, you know, I don't know, whatever, greedy. It's like if you have a right relationship, you can say that. You say, oh, well, that's not what, what we want to be. But I don't just mean the sweet tooth. I, I hear you. I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing to want to um, self-investigate and then to use that to try and uh, show up in the world with uh, a little bit more kindness. Can't go wrong with that. So Yes. So wisdom and love and you know alone and together from out or in with altruism helpfulness and good deeds and you know relations and from inside out going deeper and spiritually richer and higher if you like evolving getting enlightened living the awakened life mindful life you know imitation of buddha not necessarily imitation of christ which is a great mystic classic but the imitation of buddha we're all buddhas by nature, we only have to awaken to who and what we are. I'm translating from the Tibetan. Zogchen. And with that, we are all Buddhas. Um, how to awaken the Buddha within Lama Surya Das and um, a bunch of other books. We also shared that we're we're poets. I I know we didn't even get into that, but how that is also a way of um, really kind of tapping into these uh, kinds yes. of things that you can't really explain necessarily with Muses. language. Uh, yes. Amuses. Amuses. Lama Surya Das, thank you so much for joining me today on Wise Girl. Truly a pleasure. Always great thank to see you. Thank you, Wise Girl. I can't even remember your name, Francesca, so I'm always going to call you WG. <laughs> I, I hope like I'd it. be more than a wise guy. It can be my rap name. <laughs> all right, cool. Lama Surya Das, thank you so much. Have thank a terrific evening. My pleasure. Day. Love thank to you. one and all. You know, we're all in this together. Love to one and all. Very important. Bye-bye. Sure. Thank you. Bye-bye.